Hey, welcome to the Michelle Mission, Two Men, One Podcast, every black film ever made. My name is Len, a.k.a. the Bat Tribble. And as always, I'm joined by my partner. Hey, this is Vincent Williams. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, it's Vince's turn to choose the movie that we watch. And if you were listening last week, he chose a classic movie from the 70s. That is nowhere to be found. Streaming. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Vince, ever ready, because he was a lifelong Boy Scout. Bet you didn't know that. He, He actually had another movie ready in his quiver. So tonight we are going back to 1992 and we are visiting that movie chock full of black actors such as Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton along with Cinda Williams and Michael Beach. It is Carl Franklin's One False Move tonight on the Michaud Mission. But before we get into that, we like to follow up with each and every one of you who is following us on Facebook in our Michelle Mission Facebook group, as well as subscribing to the Michelle Mission on YouTube and emails us at Mission at gmail.com. Um, we thought that we were going to be together again, once again, in a room this week. I know. I know. I had to run back out, and now me and the family are doing a um, modified self-quarantine. That's right, because you actually yeah. had to run back down to uh, Maryland. To, yeah, back to, back, to, back to the homeland, and, and now I'm back. So, And if I understand, if Maryland, if I understand, is on Pennsylvania's list of suggested states that if you travel from there— that they suggest that you actually do a quarantine for 14 it, days. It actually isn't. Yeah, Maryland thought, actually... Oh, yeah, is it Maryland, just Delaware? Yeah, Maryland is actually doing better than Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. I was just, I was just a little looser in my personal practices down there than I should, you, you know, just out and about. You know, uh, the irony is that because Maryland is doing better, people aren't as diligent down there as they are even here in Philadelphia. Oh, I got with you. the mask and the distancing. So, just safe than sorry. We're we're just going to sort of modify self quarantine for a minute. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. As I was telling you before we we hit record, I've actually had a slight setback, uh, a a slight weather <laughs> setback in the bat base. So it will not be mm. ready to premiere for a couple more weeks. Um, so it actually is good that you won't be here uh, this week. It'll give me some time to get things uh, ready for its debut when you uh, come return home to the bat base to record. Yes, yes, yes. And, and then we'll pop open the champagne and maybe get Killer of Sheep on DVD. Yeah, we were supposed to actually be watching um, Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep, his ode to 70s life in the Watts section of Los Angeles this week. Um, But that film, as heralded as it is, is not streaming any place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's it's funny you know i have to say i don't know about you but but i know more about killer of sheep by by reputation yes than by film itself and just sort of prepping it seems like i found out about the licensing issues okay that it had all along and it's only fairly recently that it's been on dvd even Right with uh, I think is is it Milestone Media that it, that owns the rights to so. it now? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But but I know it's 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 terrible to always go back to this. But it's a WKRP in Cincinnati situation, right? Where the music clearances apparently were a huge impediment mm-hmm. to it being more widely distributed. But 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 now we know, and then like like we said, it all came together. Like I couldn't come over there. The bat base one ready, so it was supposed to be part of a celebration. So, right, we just put it back up on the shelf, but but we'll we'll pull it down. We're pulling it down. We'll be pulling it down. I actually did order yeah. a copy of it off of Amazon, so that'll be here in a couple oh. of days. Oh yeah, man. there you go. Well, you know what? I got so psyched about watching the film that uh, I actually was watching the preview, and I was watching the preview with with my uh, my lady love. And, right, right. and she was unaware of the film. She had never heard of the okay. film. So in watching the trailer for the film, uh, which is available online, and there are, you know, mm-hmm. a bunch of, some clips online. You try not to watch too much because you don't want to spoil it. Sure. But in watching that and then in reading up on the movie, she was very, very psyched to watch the film. Uh, right. So, so it actually was a bit of a... Uh, disappointment for her that we weren't able to watch it um so hope the film will be here by this weekend so that'll be a film that we will be watching this weekend along with while we'll be watching killer of sheep directed by charles burnett we'll be watching another film that is recently debuted from a black director the old guard on netflix oh yeah uh, starring Charlize Theron, and I believe it has been directed um, by Gina uh, Blythe, Blythewood, correct? Yeah, yeah, by the wood. Remember we had someone say, perhaps it's pronounced by the wood, Gina Prince by the wood. Right, Gina Prince or, by or the wood. wood. Yeah. And Kiki Lane. Don't forget Kiki Lane. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, don't forget our girl is in it. Yeah. Kiki Lane is it's also in this film, which is based on, ladies and gentlemen, an action-packed graphic novel. Yes, uh, it is. Uh, and Charlize Theron, who has been doing a yeoman work in the action sphere uh, for the last few years, I've heard nothing but good things about this film. I'm very, very, very happy for for Miss By the Wood. I'm I'm extremely happy. Much like you, I've heard nothing but good things from different quarters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. critically, uh, just sort of pedestrian. Mm-hmm. I just was looking for something on Netflix. Action folks, like as you mentioned, it is based on a graphic novel. Our comic folks, like across the board. This is a triumph. I know, I know, and yeah. and what makes it even more of a triumph for me, and probably for you as well, um, is that in the world of Hollywood, let, it, let's face it, the roles for women in Hollywood can be very limiting, even more so for Black women, and even so, mm-hmm. even more so for 
black women directors right and 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 more often than not they are asked to basically fill a lane in that sphere and one of the lanes that they are it is hard pressed for them to make the leap into is to a big budget action film with a-list talent you can't get more a-list as far as in the movies sphere right now than Netflix, you can't get one of the more A-list actresses who is one of the most bankable stars uh, in the planet right now is Charlize Theron. And everybody is looking for the next comic book property to turn into gold. So right. for Gina Prince by, by, by the wood or by the wood, uh, we, for her to get a shot at that golden ticket, bravo, bravo! Yeah, for and her. and kill it, like get a shot and kill it. Right, right, so, exactly. So yeah, so excellent, excellent, excellent. Well done, congratulations. Yeah, so I am looking forward to that this weekend. I have a fresh bag of buttered oh. pretzel balls oh my that God. are waiting. Yeah, yeah, I'm just saving yeah, them. Yeah to yes, eat while yes. I watch the old okay. guard. Okay, all right. Again, they know how to get in touch with Podglomerate. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to uh, Robert Monroe, Deborah Battle, uh, Aaron Fry, and everyone who's out there watching us on YouTube and Facebook. Hey, folks. Uh, we we stream this show live, ladies and gentlemen, on video, so you can check you can check us out. You can see two gray beards talk about black film uh, live every Tuesday night at six p.m. on our Facebook group, uh, Michelle Mission, as well as on YouTube. For those of you listening at home on the podcast, all right, all right. Uh, there was another story. That we wanted to shout out uh, a little bit, uh, Vince. Um, one from last week that you wanted to make sure that we got around, make sure to to give some some props to, and that is the Oscar winning animator Matthew Cherry. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The, uh, won an Oscar for the short film Hair Love, mm-hmm. which which was one of my absolute favorite things on earth last year amen wasn't it so it was adorable i watch hair love once every couple of months (laughs) you need to in these days and time i love hair love so much and i'm so happy that he has gotten a series deal with hbo max and for the show young love that's Mm -hmm. going to expand on the adventures of the young family featured in hair love i know so i know i'm i'm so happy for him as well. And if you've not seen Hair Love, then by all means take the what it's like seven or eight minutes. That's it. That's it. It's yeah. short. Yeah, Hard take short. the seven or eight minutes and go watch Hair Love. It's it's still around, it's still free, and it is heartwarming and heartfelt and beautiful. It is indeed, indeed beautiful. Yeah. And, and much love to uh, Matthew Cherry for uh, nailing that down. Um, it, the animation, the computer animation on Hair Love was second to none for it to be a 
relatively short film and independent film and for that to be his calling card to a series deal with the new HBO Max uh is it's just really great that's what that's what it's about right now and I and I yeah. applaud him applaud his success did you see this Vince that the showrunner from Insecure Prentice Penny mm-hmm. did a guest column for Deadline where he's yeah. calling out systemic racism in Hollywood. Now, we all know about systemic racism in Hollywood. We know about systemic racism all over. Let's face it. Right. But his his call out is so on the nose poignant. Just I'm just going to read the the first half of it, ladies and gentlemen. The um there's a link to it in our Facebook group where you can check it out. He says, <clears throat> do you know how effing hard it is to get a joke on a television show? It starts with a bit. Then it's approved by the showrunner. I know because I am one. Then it has to make it through multiple rewrites. Then a table read. Then the studio and network sign off. Then actors and directors have to film it. Then an editor, studio, and network, again, along with standards and practices sign off. Finally, it's aired and sponsors slash local affiliate stations have to be okay with it. That's a lot of people with power who approve what the American audience gets to watch. And ain't no one along the way think blackface was maybe a bad idea. Yeah. Over the past few weeks, we've seen Tina Fey. Greg Daniels, Bill Lawrence, and many other showrunners pull their blackface episodes off the air. And to quote LeBron James, it was not one, not two, not three, but multiple episodes of multiple (laughs) series. I get the instinct to want to remove these episodes. You want to be considerate of the movie, but nah. Not today. Removing these episodes absolves you and all of us from having a long overdue conversation. It ain't like racism just started this past June. Last week, these same episodes were available to watch. One could make the point, although they'd be wrong, that these episodes would have made sense had they been made in the 1950s. But these episodes were made in the 2000s by the same (laughs) people who tweet and mock the tone deafness of Megyn Kelly's inability to understand why blackface is wrong. Huh? It continues on from there. Um, It is a fantastic, fantastic, Fantastic throwdown by Prentice Penny. I invite you all to check it out. It's on Deadline. Um, and I, I don't need to say anything else. Bruh's just yeah. said it all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely love it. it, it like you said, it's systemic. And, and you hear people... I mean, you all... It, 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 it's every six months somebody writes something about this, uh, about trying to succeed in the arts, in academics, in um, corporate America, in wherever, mm-hmm. and and dealing with the systems right. of racism and of bigotry. And, and I, I just, I, I, I love the fact that at least at this moment, people are calling things what they are out loud. Mm-hmm. So, 
I, Shout, you, you know. I got a I got a question for you. Um, okay. Most of the shows, and I, I've been reading about all these shows that have been pulling their blackface episodes and stuff like that. And most of them, to be honest, are shows that I I don't watch. Like I, right. so I don't. I'm not even aware of these blackface episodes. I don't know what the context was of these blackface episodes, so I can't really speak about them. Right. But I'm curious, since we are primarily a movie podcast. Um, at 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 the at at the core, are you familiar with the movie from? It's probably over ten years old now. Um, Tropic Thunder. Yeah. Which which oh, yeah. which starred, of course, Ben Stiller, Jack Black, uh, and Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Famously or infamously, right in blackface for the whole movie. Right. Um, now, I would contend that the reason that he was in blackface, there was definitely a context to it, story-wise, exactly. and the the uncomfortableness of him being in blackface and the fact that he was in blackface was germane to the story. I was about to say it was actually part of the plot. Right. So when I watched that, I didn't find that it was off-putting to me. I saw right. the humor in it. Don't get me wrong. I know people, I have friends who totally disagree, saw that it was right. a blackface, just, not, just can't get down with it, right? right? I was curious where you fell with Tropic Thunder. I'm the same way. The same way. I actually thought the the whole point of of his character in blackface was to critique the character in blackface. And and right. you know, if you kind of pull out a bit and look at the plot of the film, it was poking fun at the the concept of the method actor, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. who becomes so in, enveloped in the role that they lose themselves. But much like you. I I don't have a problem with people being offended by it. Right. Uh, likewise, there's an episode of Community that okay. they pulled because one of the characters it's it's a Dungeons and Dragons episode. Okay. And and one of the characters and I forgot I just forgot the the actor's name. It was it's the, the Asian actor who's in the um, Hangover movies. Oh. Ken, oh. Uh, yeah. Wow. Anyway, it's relevant that he's Asian because in the Dungeons and Dragons episode, he basically dresses up as a quote unquote dark elf Mm -hmm. and he covers himself in black makeup. Okay. Okay. So that when you think about the history of blackface, that doesn't really quite fit into the history of blackface. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, I, I just have to say, I don't, if you're not black, I don't really want to hear your opinion of blackface. Oh, that's true. Nor do, nor do I feel like you should even play with it. Okay. And and I'm really a hardliner. Like like it's sort of like the word nigger, uh, blackface. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these sort of racially specific topics that there are a variety of opinions on. Mm-hmm. And I've had a variety of conversations about them. 
But if you're not black, I'm not having that conversation with you at all. Okay. Like this isn't your business. This is family business. Okay, so I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. And that character's that actor's name is uh, Ken uh, Jeong. Uh, yeah, Ken Jeong. Right. Right. Um, I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. In in context to let's say that episode of Community or Tropic Thunder. So. Right. So Dan Harmon, the creator of Community, is white. Right. Ken Jeong is Asian. Right. This is a bit they worked out amongst themselves. Right. I didn't have a problem with it. Right. Let's say you had a problem with it. Right. You so you and, I de- you and I debate it. Dan Harmon comes in to give his side of it. I'm going to go, ah, ah, ah. Mind your business. Don't have nothing to do with you. Right. Right. And then you and I talk. So, so in that scenario, so Dan Harmon, no, we don't care about his opinion. Well, well you wouldn't care about his opinion uh, in regards to this. But wouldn't, couldn't you argue that he's already showed his opinion because he produced right. that episode? But he was out, out of pocket. So, so people drag him over the coals. You shouldn't have done it. And, like, again, personally, I, was like, I understood what he was doing. But, like, if you and, and, and you, you know, the, the advertisers and, and everybody pressure people to drop community off of Hulu and this, that, and the other – I would. I'm basically that um that that um SpongeBob SquarePants meme where where the, the dude Squidward leans up and then he put his glasses back on and leans back down. Got you. Got you. Because you shouldn't have messed with it. That's like right. you shouldn't have messed with it. Right. So you're lucky that it didn't bother me. But if you get dragged for it, oh well, that's what you get. Right. That that's what you get. You shouldn't have messed with it. Got you. Got you. Okay. All right. And that's kind of like. How I now feel too. My, right. And that's my opinion of this stuff. Like, again, the word nigger, which is going to come up in this episode with this film. Yes. We've talked about it before. Some people don't think the word should be used. Some people think the word should just be used with, with us. Some people use ridiculous terms like N-word. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, people argue about A's and E-R's. Right. And again, I've had a variety of that conversation. I don't have that conversation with anybody who's not black, though. Exactly. Like, if you're not black, I don't, I, I, I just don't have nothing to do with you. Yes. This is family business. Exactly. All and right. then you kind of go from, but, but you know, again, that's me. You asked me. I did ask you. Yeah. And thank you for sharing, Vince. We hey, man, it. always. All right. Uh, let's see. Well, you know what? It's almost it's almost that time, ladies and gentlemen, for right. for us to get into our review of one false move, the other Cinda Williams film. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> We've now covered Cinda Williams filmography. <laughs> is that true? I mean, I think, I, I think it is. I'm pretty like, sure it's the only other one of real note. These are the only two that I think of. <laughs> I think these are oh, the only... Oh, dude. Apparently she was in a billion movies. What? No, she wasn't. <laughs> a billion. She was just in a movie in 2012. Now, I haven't heard of any of them. Get out of here. She was in... Mo- I, am, I am looking at her right now. Okay, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Vince. Yes, she was in a bunch of movies, but let's go through some of these titles. 
She started I, her I, career with Mo Better Blues. Followed I don't need up to go through the fight. With right. one false move. And then. And then. And then. She's in wet. <laughs> the she was also in Tales of Erotica. Tales of Erotica. Relax. It's just sex. Um, <laughs> when do we oh. eat? Oh, that's just. That's terrible. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we'll talk about that as well. <laughs> we will. We will. As we get into our review of One False Move. We'll be back with the film review soon as we do something funky and have steps in it. There was no fear in Star City, Arkansas. No murder. No killers. Until now. There is violence we've ever seen. What's the story on this Star City thing? You think it'd be a wild goose chase if you went down there? Welcome to Star City, boys! For Chief Dale Dixon, it's the chance of a lifetime. Follow me! After 10 years of busting people, toms, and stop sign runners, I'd kind of like to take a crack at the big time. These are dangerous people we're dealing with. Get your hands up. Last night, some folks killed a Texas State Trooper. Looks like they're headed our way, boys. Yeah, I've never seen that. It's exciting before. It's waiting on the bad guys with a kid waiting for Christmas. But his first shot at the big time. I think he looks at y'all like you're some kind of heroes. Well, we're, we're far from that. Might be his last. We're gonna be cool. Damn, it's going to be a big one. We're going to play it by ear. Somebody's going to die. We're not going to kill them unless we have to. Sometimes, the difference between living and dying is... One False Move. One False Move is a 1992 American crime thriller directed by Carl Franklin and co-written by Billy Bob Thornton. The film also stars Bill Paxton and Cinda Williams. It's a low-budget production uh, that Gene Siskel voted his favorite film of 1992. The Mm -hmm. plot centers around three criminals, Ray Pluto, played by Michael Beach, and Fantasia, Ray's girlfriend, Cinda Williams, who commits six brutal murders over the course of one night in Los Angeles as they seek a cachet of money and cocaine. The trio leave for Houston to sell the cocaine to a friend of Pluto's where they somehow stumble into Arkansas, the home of local sheriff Bill Paxton. This film from 1992 was Vince's uh, audible that he called. It's my audible, yeah. For tonight's episode of the Michelle Mission, Vince, what say you of one false move? While while this is my audible, this is a film that I've had on my list for years. I'm I'm a big fan of one false move, and you know, quite honestly, I don't have a whole lot to say technically about this film outside of, I I think this is a great film just from top to bottom. And this is a type, this is the film that led me to a lot of different 
people. Uh, we, we talked about Carl Franklin last time when we talked about his film Devil in a Blue Dress. Mm-hmm. And when we talked to his next film, actually. And Devil in a Blue Dress was on my radar because of his direction of One False Move. It is taut. It is not a hair out of place. I think scene to scene, there are scenes that are, the tension is palpable. Um, you, you know, I think he's, he's a really good director. Mm-hmm. Likewise, you and I talked, and, and ironically, I had forgotten that Billy Bob Thornton was in this film, but I really had forgotten because How'd I How'd you forget know, that ponytail? Well, and more importantly, I remember that he wrote the script. Okay. And okay. Sling Blade was on my radar because of this film. Okay. I love this screenplay. I think this is a tight screenplay. And I and and you know, again, just the, the dialogue and the storytelling and just from piece to piece, I think works really, really well, especially in concert with the direction. Acting wise, uh, we joked about it. I don't think Cinda Williams is a great actress, mm-hmm. but I think this film where she plays a femme fatale, and we'll talk about that in a moment, she has a lot, she has more going on than just being the hot girl in Mo Better Blues. Okay. And I like Cinda Williams' character a great deal. Now, how much of that is the screenplay and how much of that is Cinda Williams, I think we can talk about. But I think this is a great character. Billy Bob Thornton, I think, has always been a good character actor. And I think he his character is a great one, or rather a really good one in this film as well. Speaking of, of movies that, or, or rather performances that put people on the map, this is my favorite Michael Beach role. Okay. This is my favorite, and and frankly, this is what like I I ignored and resisted ER for probably two or three years before somebody mentioned that Michael Beach was on ER. Okay, and I said, okay, well, let me check it out. Likewise, Bill Paxton. I'm not going to say this is Bill Paxton's best role, frankly, because Bill Paxton was in so many movies that I, you, you know, like, I, I just, I'm not sure what he was and was not in, but I love this role. I love Hurricane, this small town, detect, this small town cop mm-hmm. who's just sort of, you know, ambitious in this Yahoo and a good old boy. Yeah. But what all goes along with him being a good old boy. So if you come in here for, you know, you just mentioned Gene Siskel. If you come in here for the Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, thumbs up, thumbs down, I give this a thumbs up. And that's really all I want to say. What I really want to talk about with this film, however, is something that you and I talked about and, and something that I have to, you know, Lynn, you all are oftentimes on the same page. My wife said, well, is this, yo, is that a black movie? Like, she remember watching it? And I think this film is a is most is 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 a rich experience when looked through the lens of how race works in this movie. Okay. Again, I've always been a fan of this movie. This movie has been on my mind a lot since this summer. I actually read a, a great book. Uh, well, I'm going to hold it up, but like if you're listening to the um, podcast, you won't see it. But 
but Film Blackness, American Cinema, and the Idea of Black Film by Michael Boyce Galepsi. And he's a prof out of New York who, who studies film. And you, you want to talk about dream guests. If anybody knows Michael Boyce Gillespie, we'd love to have him on the show. But he has a chapter about film noir. Yes. Okay. And deep cover, and the film Deep Cover, which I mentioned that because Deep Cover is also on my short list mm-hmm. of films to talk about. But within this chapter, he quotes Montua Dewewa. Montua Dewewa, and I may be mispronouncing his name, but he wrote an essay called Noir by Noirs okay. Towards a New Realism in Black Cinema. And this whole essay is about Black creators playing with noir. Right. Film noir. Now, if anyone anyone who has listened to this podcast, I think if you're going to break down the line of demarcation between me and Lynn, Lynn, I think you're really the film guy. Like, you're a film guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like Black stuff. Yes, yes. And black movies under film is kind of like where the Venn diagram you and I meet right. for this podcast. Right. So I don't know a lot about film noir as a form. Mm-hmm. You know, I like some movies. I know it's the shadows and this, that, and the other. But apparently, a dude in 1955, Raymond Board and Etienne Chamoton, wrote this seminal work. That's what it says in here. Panorama du film noir américain mm-hmm. in 1955. And what yeah. they theorized is that noir, which comes after World War II, and, and, and you know, basically, it, it, you have white people, frankly, trying to construct this American dream, this post-war American dream. And what noir represents is, quote, is Black because the characters have lost the privilege of whiteness by pursuing lifestyles that are misogynistic, cowardly, duplicitous, and that exhibit themselves in an eroticism of violence. Mm -hmm. So in other words, when you look at film noir and you look at the femme fatale and you look at all of the figures in the underworld, what they represent is this symbolic blackness. Yes. Because they are not part of the pure white world. Okay. Gillespie goes on to say that these Black filmmakers complicate that by bringing race into the foreground where we talk about these issues. And I think that works a couple of ways in this film. First and foremost, this is a film set in the South. I know we can argue about Arkansas geographically. Is that the Southwood part of the South? But I think it is fair to say that culturally, This is the South. Most definitely. And when we talk about the South and we talk about these small towns and we talk about, you know, the small town policeman and the good old boy and, and, you know, it's almost like the Andy Griffith model. I was about to say, he is almost like the amalgamation of Andy Griffith and Barney Fife from the Andy Griffith show in that he is a good cop. He is a good old boy cop, but like Barney Fife, he just longs to do so much more and make it to the big time. But the way that this script and Carl Franklin complicate that is that he's a small town cop. Yes. 
Yes. These are the dudes who are in the plan. Yes. Like these are actually the racist dudes. And I think again, back to this script, it does a magnificent job showing the racism mm-hmm. of Hurricane, whether it's when he's first on a conference call and he talks about the two colored boys, mm-hmm. whether it's it's when he gets excited and he says, if that white trash and those two niggers get here, mm-hmm. I'm going to catch him. And his wife kicks him under the table. Because he's speaking in front of a, a black be- FBI agent. A black FBI agent that I love the subtle racism that he is so disrespectful of him that he never gets his name right. Exactly. The entire film. Right. So that this this framing of this small town and this sort of idyllic existence is already complicated by the fact that this man who safeguards this town is racist. And once mm-hmm. you look through that lens, it complicates the whole environment. Right. There's this wonderful scene where he goes and there's a domestic situation, and a guy is going after his wife with an axe, basically. Mm-hmm. Or he's swinging an axe around. Like, I think the implication is he was not going to hurt his wife. Right, but right, right, right. You, this is the what they do. The two big city detectives see it. They take out their guns because they just see a crazy guy swinging an axe around. Right. But then Hurricane goes, and he, you know, he talks them down, and he de-escalates. Mm-hmm. And and everything goes wrong. But to me, the most chilling part of that scene was when Hurricane, as he is de-escalating, tells the guy, look, you can put the axe in the shed, you can apologize, or do you want to go for a ride with me? Yeah. Do you want to go for a ride with me? And the implication is that you don't want to go for a ride with Hurricane. Exactly. And of course, as we all kind of, it's almost like a a... a you know, um, gallows humor at this point. We all know that if this dude was black swinging this axe around, it Hurricane would not have de-escalated like that. Oh, no. No, not at all. Cinda Williams, who is a biracial character, represents this muddying of the lines. Again, with film noir, the morality is very stark. That's true. You have You have the pure world you have the moral world, you have this white world, mm-hmm. and then you have the underworld. Yes. And the failings of the people in film noir is that they go into this other world. Whereas in this, she is a femme fatale, but much like Robin Givens' character in another uh, another film that he cites in noir by, by noirs, A Rage in Harlem, this is a black woman who is trying to navigate this world not from a position of power, but who does not have a lot of cards to play. And then as we find out as the film goes on, Hurricane has fathered a child with her. Yeah. When she was a teenager. And, you know, the implication is that perhaps this started before she was, you know, she had the baby when she was 17. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as he tells his the story about him meeting her to the big city cop, for I believe he said five years, he was mentoring her after he caught her shoplifting. Yeah. yeah. So you know you kind of make your own leap. But Cinderella, Fantasia is very pointed about the fact that I come from a tradition of this. I'm biracial because my father was white who abandoned my mother. Exactly. 
Now you are abandoning me. And she actually says at one point, does your wife know that you have a child in nigger town? Mm -hmm. So that in my mind, and then, you know, we can talk about Michael Beach's Pluto because I think Pluto is part of a tradition too. But in my mind, what makes this film pop is the muddiness of race and how it kind of, well, muddies it up. Yeah, I, I I would agree with you that that is the heat for the most part of the film, right? Um, and everything that you just said, I think, is on the nose. I think that at its heart, first of all, at its heart, as a film itself, this is a good film. I joked before we turned on the, the mics that I didn't like the the movie it's a good film I'm, I'm not stupid this is a good film it's got good actors in it cinda williams is not we've we, we've said not the, the the best actress in the world but her performance is buoyed by being around and playing against billy bob thornton playing against michael beach playing against uh bill paxton so that she, it, uh, her, um, her naivete as an actress, because to be to be blunt, this is only her second film, mm-hmm. um, is not as distracting because she is usually playing off of them, right? So, but but it's a very good, uh, almost it's definitely a film noir. It has a lot of the touches of it. It has some very crisp and exciting editing in it in this film, which is all always on hallmark of a, a good film noir um, editing that can play with tone and pace in a film very expertly. Uh, and this film has it. It's got a bit of the Southern Gothic about it as well. Um, that it makes it just it makes it enjoyable. Um, so there's a lot to admire about this film. And the heat that does come from the story of Cinda Williams' character, Fantasia, or, or her real name, Lila, and her relationship with Bill Paxton's Hurricane is definitely the meat of this film. My only contention as far as keeping it in, in, in the realm of being a black film or not, is that because that comes decidedly later in the film, I think it probably is not real it's not really hit dead on the nose until you're going into the third act of the movie, if I remember. Um I I don't think that that's enough for me to land it in black film territory. That being said, if you want to say it's a black film, if a whole bunch of other people want to say it's a black film, if the village wants to say it's a black film, I'm not going to pull it out of that section. I'm going to be like, okay, it's a black film. It's fine. Because race is commented on subtly, and and subtextually in this film all throughout the script. It is a very tight script. Um, it does show you that 
Billy Bob Thornton, who would go on to be not only be one of the more heralded character actors, but one of the more heralded lead actors in mm-hmm. Hollywood uh, uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s. It definitely shows that if he wanted to, this man could have easily made possibly the same mark just as a screenwriter because mm-hmm. he, he would have only his skills would have just only tightened up as he went uh, went along the way um and and I wouldn't be surprised to find out that he doesn't have a secret hand on a lot of his scripts um because it it is expertly written the dialogue is crisp um and what the the one thing I do like about the the dialogue is that a crime movie and a film noir, especially as that genre has moved into the 60s and 70s and, and, and into the uh, 21st century, more and more does not hold punches. And yet, when you have a movie that is about race between black people and white people, as much commentary as you may want to make on it, unless that film is decidedly about slavery or about a moment in time, then I always feel that there's at some moment that they they take their foot off the pedal as far as right. the realism of what they're right. depicting. You know, they they uh, they still want to play it a little safe and. Right. In a, a film noir, you can't do that. You've got to go for it. So if you're going to muddy the waters and bring race into this, then you've got to go balls to the wall with it. And I say that because it is very, very disturbing to see Billy Bob Thornton early on in this film break into a party that is happening Uh, basically, even though he uses Fantasia's character as a way in, but then him and Michael beach break into this party. You know, it's just three, three people, three black people in there having a good time dancing. And he stands a, a young woman up against the wall and he slaps her. I think conservatively, 10 times across the face trying to get an answer to a question. He's decidedly a a bad guy. He has two black partners that are with him. One of the black partners is meanwhile tying up everybody else in the house. Stand Michael Beach's character standing there looking all to all the world like a silent assassin. While this white man unapologetically is slapping the hell out of this woman uh, uh, up against the wall. And you you need that ferocity in this film to one shorthand exactly who this character is, exactly their relationship in this film, and exactly to introduce you to this is the type of movie that you're watching. Sit down yeah. if you if you if you're in it. Sit down and enjoy it 
we're going to rock with you. If you're not, turn off the, the step out of the movie theater right now. Um, and I appreciated that right from the door. I will. It was uncomfortable for me, especially oh, yeah. knowing that, you know, this is a black film. And I'm like, yeah. well, well, all the black people in here, but they're getting roped up and tied up and then soon murdered um, yeah. very violently. Uh, yeah. Okay, what has what has Vince sat me down for? It is uh it is very disturbing. But even with that, because it, it's a film noir that is set in this in this milieu and with these two black characters, I still wasn't sure whether or not I could call it a a black film. I didn't think that to me, this was a film noir that is dealing with race, but I don't know necessarily that I would call it a black film noir. But that being said, again, I think I, I, I think I'm convincing myself with it because Billy Bob Thornton wrote this, but he co-wrote it. He actually co-wrote right. this film. You got to remember that he co-wrote this film um, along with uh, Tom Everson, who's also who's actually one of his uh, longtime collaborators. Uh, right. Carl Franklin as the director, we have to imagine that he had a hand in crafting this story. He made choices. That's he right. made he made these choices. He directed these actors in this right. film. Um, so I think because I, to your point, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead to your point to stay with that scene. You know what I love about that early, that first sequence where just to finish the the, the plot summary. They, they're going over there. They torture these people to get to the big drug dealer yeah. so that they can rob him. Right. These are two domestic scenes that they show. As you said, this is a family. They're celebrating. It's actually a birthday party. That's right. That's right. It's 1992, so they're playing with their video camera mm -hmm. and taping each other. And then they go and they break into the other... Uh, dealer's house who's there with his wife and his child. Yeah. These are two domestic situations. Now, this is 1992. Mm -hmm. When you depict drug dealers in 1992 and black drug dealers, it's always some dude with his rag on, rag on his head, and he doesn't have a shirt on. Yeah. And like Ice Cube is blaring and it's some pit bulls on chains. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And this is what drug dealers look like. Right, right. And in a film, again, playing with noir, for you to say that these people who are, by definition, part of the underworld mm -hmm. are in domestic situations. Yes. They actually cut from, because uh, when they go to the second dealer's house, his son hides. Mm -hmm. And Cinder Williams' character, Fantasia, lets him get away. But then they smash cut to Hurricane's house where he's with his wife and his daughter. Mm -hmm. So that the film actually juxtaposes Poses, these yes. two scenes of domesticity. Yeah, But it's letting you know early on that there is no clear line. Yeah, yeah. Especially when, you know, again, Cinder Williams lets this child go because she reminds him of her son mm -hmm. hurricane is looking at his daughter and his wife in this sort of beautiful 
picture perfect household. But then you find out that the implication is that he's been statutory raping Cinder Williams' character. Yeah. You know, I don't know what the age of consent is in Arkansas in 1992, but she was 17 when she had the baby, and then he abandoned the child. Right, and he was the sheriff. And he's and he is the lawman. So that all of it is is again, I feel like uh, I'm just keep saying it. These are black drug dealers who you are uncomfortable with their murder because within two or three minutes, because of the direction, because of the screenplay, because of the editing, they are humanized in a way that in 1992. You, you know, I don't I don't have it, you know, off the top of my head. I forget what year Tales from the Hood was, but just pulling Tales from the Hood out of the air. And we talk about the way black drug dealers were shown in something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think this is very much part of a black film conversation. Something else. This isn't black, but I love this little moment. Again. Hurricane is part of this perfect domestic situation. Mm-hmm. He has a wife, this this sort of perfect white wife. She cooks. She's a mother. She's all of this stuff that you have. I love the fact that she's smarter than Hurricane now. Oh, yeah. I love the fact that she's not some innocent just sitting in this sort of nest mm-hmm. where he kind of comes back. Um like I text Lynn, there's this wonderful exchange that she has with um, the white detective because Hurricane looks up to him and Hurricane has these dreams of moving to the big city. And she says to him, Hurricane just doesn't know any better. Right. Hurricane watches TV, right. but I read nonfiction. And I love that moment of clarity that it came from her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that even that subverts your expectation. It's, this is, uh, you know, we were watching um, The Bodyguard a few weeks ago, and I caught The Untouchables on cable. Oh, wow. And, and you know, I like The Untouchables, but The Untouchables, it's a very simplistic film. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, you know um, Kevin Cosner's wife, and I just forgot the actress's name, who plays his wife in um, The Untouchables. Oh, I can't remember. I, didn't, I forgot that they had a wife. Her whole job in The Untouchables is to be white and pretty and a mom and wear dresses and kind of clutch her pearls about the danger that uh, Kevin Cosner is in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because even The Untouchables is a play on this. Yeah. And you have two types of women. You have the femme fatale and you have the innocent. But even with Hurricane's wife, they kind of muddy it up. So you, you, you're right. And in in film noir, the, you know, some all of the best film noir have a femme fatale character in them, and right. it's not hard to imagine Carl Franklin looking at Cinda Williams and thinking, "Oh my gosh, she could be a great femme fatale in this film," but. What what bothered me about her character, the traditional femme fatale is usually either as smart 
or smarter mm-hmm. than the antagonists and protagonists in the film. Right. Fantasia slash Lila in this film may be a hair smarter than her five-year-old son. Right. I think I think if we gauge intelligence by survival instinct, I think she's smarter than Billy Bob Thornton's character, and I think arguably she's smarter than Hurricane. Well, I'll give her that she's smarter than Billy Bob Thornton's character because his character right. is is portrayed to be just right. not the the swiftest, you know. Uh, but I guy. think she is. I think in that scene with Hurricane in that house, she is slowly but surely figuring out how to work him. I don't. And see- if she hadn't have died, I think she was. And I love the moment. There's this beautiful moment where she goes to get her cigarette. Yeah, yeah. And he goes and grabs the bag, and there's a gun in the bag. And she says, did you think I was going to get the gun and shoot you? And I love the fact that as the viewer, my answer was, I don't know. Exactly. Like, I don't know. And to me, that says a lot about her interiority. That I've been watching this whole movie. I watched her shoot the cop. But when she says, did you think I was going to shoot you? I wasn't sure. So, you know, I don't like like I I, I wouldn't have um, I wouldn't have been like um, our president, Donald Trump. I wouldn't have paid her to take my SAT for me. (laughs) But if I had to put money on who was going to figure out how to survive. I don't think it would be a bad bet to put it on her. Well, I will say, and I, I did forget about that, that because I w- when I was watching the film, I made a comment also that um, in the end, when she does have, you know, have uh, her conversation with uh, Hurricane and it does look like she's trying to play him. First of all, I don't think I think that while she is trying to play him, I don't think that at any point she gets over on him. I think he's knocked back on his heels a little bit because of, of you know, the idea of his son. Um, and I think that he was, I mean, you, you, you catch wind early on that he was kind of like keeping an eye on the family. Um, right. But you don't know whether or not he implicitly knows that that's his son or not. You, um, right. Because you saw him looking at Fantasia's brother with his son at the store, leaving the store. Um, and and nothing is said about that. So you don't know exactly what you're, what to make of him just kind of like sitting off in his car watching them walk by. Um so did he know that that was maybe his son? I don't know. Maybe, but right. did he, or was it that he just knew that that was the family of someone who meant something to him and he was just keeping a watchful eye on them? You don't know, right? right. So right. I want to play it that, that he, he, even if he thought that that might've been his son, he wasn't sure and then when he is made to realize that it is his son, that he is knocked back on his heels a little bit by it, right? Um, probably 
knocked back on his heels by it because of, oh my God, that is my son. And then when you do that, and with Fantasia coming at him as the way that he that she does, his own, you know, prejudices are now being thrown into his face. His own racism is being thrown into his face. So that also is knocking him back on his heels as well. But I don't think that at any time she gets over on him. If anything, I think she's trying to vie for our, for our sympathy. And right. I think that and 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 I guess I I I guess I see I'm talking myself into loving the movie even more now because mm-hmm. I think there is a comp you know a, a a complication to that whole scene and her you know pleading her case because you as the viewer know that in the back of your mind not 15 minutes earlier she s- shot a cop in cold blood exactly. Um, exactly. Unapologetically, gun to the head. Um. So, and in there lies a true femme fatale at work. Yeah. So I and guess she for, is a femme fatale. Yeah, and not for nothing. I mean, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about Michael Beach's Pluto character. Yeah. Who's just this magnificent monster mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you know it, it, it's like where, where Billy Bob Thornton is all fire and, and short fuse he's you know Michael Beach's Pluto is just methodical and 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 just kind of cold just coiled and, and coiled uh, 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 viciousness yeah and I think what I noticed this time around because I wanted to pay attention to Cinder Williams mm-hmm. because kind of like you my memory of this film was that Cinder Williams was the weak link. Right. But she was the weak link because everyone else was so strong. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I paid attention to Cinder Williams and there is a wonderful energy between the three of them from the very beginning where she's, you know, she comes out in the towel in the room with both of them, but she's always looking at Pluto. Yeah. I always got the sense that A, she was way more aware of how dangerous Pluto was than Billy Bob Thornton was. B, I almost got the sense that she was, like I almost felt like she was maybe positioning herself to go with Pluto. Like, like, just sort of keeping Pluto on her good side, and and she always see kept that. her eye on Pluto. And then when she screws up, when they think she and, and oh, the script is so wonderful because the script plays fair. Like as the viewer, we know they're going to Star City because it was on the videotape. Mm-hmm. They think that it's because she let the boy go, and Pluto says, "Oh, you got to get rid of the girl." And that's the end of it. And in my mind, that's when she moves to another layer of I got to do what I got to do to survive. So that the woman that lets the boy go is not the woman who shoots the cop in the head. 
Got you. Okay. The woman who lets the the, the little boy go still has the Pluto card to play. Mm-hmm. Pluto says you got to get rid of the girl. She knows that. Yeah, Pluto is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now both of them are are are, are dead weight. Right. So right. now she shoots the cop, and then you kind of see this this uh again this evolution of this character again, but the film kind of puts forth that she is put on this road because of what happened with Hurricane. Right. Like she makes a point of saying, I was a virgin. Yeah. And everything that virginity means. Yeah. And you kind of basically set me on this road. Kay Martin wrote that uh, I'm going to have to question her intelligence <laughs> slash survival skills when she runs outside towards the bullets without a gun, only armed <laughs> with screams. Yes, 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 yes. Well, well <laughs> fair point. It's, right. Especially when Hurricane told her, step back there so you stay out of the line of fire. Yes. Like he actually tells her. Like he, like he literally shows her, like, this is the line of fire. Right, right. Stay here if you want to live. Right, right. Well, that's a fair point. <laughs> well, but you know what? You're right. The movie plays fair. Because no sooner does she step in the line of fire. Right. She gets popped. Then she catches a bullet dead to her head. Right. And thus ended the film career of Cinderella. <laughs> yeah. So this was an interesting choice, Vince. At the end of the day, yeah. I got to say it was a very interesting choice. Look, I think it's a film that people who it's it's funny when you read the history of the film. And I think it was supposed to go to uh, direct a video mm-hmm. or it was going to go on cable and then word of mouth happened. Yeah. And it kind of and I think that that has been the legacy of that of this film where I don't know how many people talk about it a lot. But people that know it love it. Yeah. And and you know I I do think I always think about this film with Blood Simple, the Cohen brothers first film. Mhm. And and I know the only reason I do that is cuz I didn't cuz I think Blood Simple comes out in 1984. And I know I didn't see it when it came out. Mhm. But I saw it about the same time. So I always think about the two films together. And much like we've been talking about this whole episode with race in noir and the Southern Gothic, mm-hmm. that is one aspect, because I love the Coen brothers, but that's one aspect of the Coen brothers that has always left me cold. Like they said, a lot of their films in these rural towns, in these Southern towns, and they, for the most part, just ignore race. Yeah, yeah. Like they just ignore it. Yeah, right, right. So that, you know, even something like My Beloved Fargo, Mm-hmm. The film Fargo, like, you know, I'm pulling for this plucky small town cop, but I also don't trust small town cops. Yeah, but I mean, it, at least with Fargo, what I will say is that you do have the character who's so infatuated with her. And not only are you surprised to meet him, but he's an Asian guy. So while it doesn't deal with, it, it, I mean, right. It, Race is still there in a way. 
Right, right, but it's it, it's not blackness. Right, it's not blackness. And when we're talking about we're, when we're talking about the police, we're talking about blackness, and, and you know, kind of these Fair small enough. town. Uh, you know, I was saying earlier, you know, talking about my favorites, but it's like, eh. like Justified is in my top five shows of the past twenty years. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, you know the 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 Maverick Lawman who bends the rules. Eh. Yeah. Eh. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I feel you. I feel you. You know, I love Justified, but I, I feel like you. I, I actually, I, I want somebody to do it by the book because I know what happens when you go off book. That's right. We've been, we've been there. We've seen that. Right. And I, and and ultimately, this is a film that discusses that. Yes. Yes, it does. This is a film that shows itself. Yeah. I, I do think that this is a film that is so close to the late 80s that some of some of the trappings of it uh, date the film a little bit. And I think right. that's what maybe keeps the film from kind of like staying on the people's radar. Uh, I was okay. thinking, Because when I was watching this, I was thinking of a film that actually comes out uh, much later than I thought uh, in 1998 with Billy Bill Paxton, Billy Bob Thornton and Bridget Fonda, a simple plan, which is, yeah. which is not a, a crime. Well, it is a crime movie, but it's not dealing with, with, with the cops, but, um, right. Right. It, but it's definitely got the Southern Gothic. It's definitely got the, yeah. the noir in it and the, the black humor in it as well. Um, and this movie Great was, too. movie was very reminiscent of it. Uh, I just, I just, I honestly just think it's some of the trappings of it. Billy Bob Thornton's his his ducktail ponytail and um, <laughs> Michael Beach's uh, high waisted pants, button up collar that maybe and you know some of the music choices kind of dates it a little bit to sure. where it's made in 1992, but there's some late 80s aesthetic that sure. might be a bridge that people are not willing to cross to sure. watch this film again but I, I i i applaud i applaud people who actually do make the leap because i think they will sit down and find themselves enjoying a a undiscovered gem of the early 90s this film yeah and and just to circle i think that is something that the corn brothers do very well like there is a timelessness mm-hmm. to their work right that i think they avoid that issue yeah, yeah that's a really good point yeah all right. Before we tell everybody, what wait, we, did we recommend it? We did we? Well, I, th- I thought we probably pretty much just did. It, okay. Would you recommend gotta, this film? We got to stay on the book. We can't go off book, Lynn. You know what happens when you go off book. Would you recommend this film, Vince? I would recommend this film very much. So. So would, would I? Would you recommend this film? There you go. I would as well. Okay. <laughs> now you about, you about to abuse somebody civil rights. Before we tell you what we're going to be watching next week, ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to uh, send us all of your feedback, your thoughts and concerns. Email us at the at me show mission at gmail.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-A-U-X-M-I-S-S-I-O-N at gmail.com. Like and follow us on all social medias at me show mission. That's where you can find us even on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, Michelle Mission. Join the Facebook group, Michelle Mission, where we have a lot of fun. 
and follow the Michelle Mission podcast available on MichelleMission.com as well as a proud member of the Podglomerate, the Podglomerate curated podcast for your listening pleasure. We can also be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, CastBox, wherever you find podcasts, you'll find the Michelle Mission. And if you want to help us, please especially on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and review because that really helps people find our show. What else is down the line? Okay, yes, you can also, if you want to support the show, hit us up on themeshowmission.com and hit swag. Go to the Show Mission store where you can find tons of uh, T-shirt designs and and, uh, little chotskis celebrating the Show Mission. Every sale it puts a little bit of coffers, you know, money into our coffers, which helps us keep this show free for you. All right. Um, and the Michelle Mission is available as a radio show every Monday morning at 9 a.m. on WKDU 91.7 FM, the voice of Drexel University. And you can find us Saturdays at 1 p.m. on WPPM. People Power Media, Philly Cam, here in the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. Okay? All right, Vince. Yes, sir. Next week. Now, I'm calling an internal inner audible on myself for next week's movie. All my right? goodness, that sounds like that hurt. It did a little bit, but the joy will come in the morning. So... I, as you know, as you you rightfully put, I'm the movie guy here. So when it comes to selecting our films, I like to make sure that we we pay homage. We are watching every black film ever made. So it usually is the usually when we dip into the crates, that's because I pulled the crates out. And I dipped into them. And I was ready to dip into the crates for uh, a film from the 1940s. But then Vince made one false move happen. Oh. And with that film, I decided, you know what? I'm going to leave the crates till the fall. I'm okay. just going to go crazy and just have fun pulling all types of movies that arguably could be black films, but you might not think so to look at them at first glance. And my first choice. Oh boy. Are you ready to defend it as black? Are you ready to defend it as black? Oh, I am. I am, dog. From 1995. We are dipping into the world, ladies and gentlemen. I got got professors and stuff that back me up. I had a French dude back me up. What you going to have? Oh, I'm going to have a tribe that backs me up on this one. (laughs) And my tribe will outshout all of your professors and learned academics to the high heavens. When I go to 1995 and I go inside the magic kingdom that is Walt Disney. And I pull for our watching pleasure next week, a film 
that features the talents of Jason Marsden, Kelly Martin, Wallace Sean, Jim Cummings, Bill Farmer. I still don't know what this is. And one Pauly Shore, as well as the voice talents of the incredible Tevin Campbell. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm bringing you next week Walt Disney's A Goofy Movie right here on the Michaud Mission for (laughs) your watching and reviewing pleasure. Oh, there we go. There we go. From one false move to a goofy movie. To a goofy movie. Only on the Michaud Mission. Only on the Michaud Mission. That's right. That's right. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. That's right, George Kimona. You give me your Cisco and Jake, and I'll give you (laughs) Goofy and Max on a goofy movie (laughs) next week here on the Michelle Mission. Until then, he's Vince. I'm Len. And in parting, we say... We'll see you when it's time to meet again. Getting to know all about you. What's that from? Is that from South Pacific or The King and I? I have absolutely no idea. I know it from a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Oh, for God. That's where I, dude, I know about two lines to every great piece of musical theater. I know. Because (laughs) Bugs Bunny sings them in all one of them in one of his cartoons. I have read several articles that talks about the ambient cultural education that people our age have mm-hmm. about opera and classical music yes. because of Bugs Bunny. Kids don't get it. Right. Like, we have Temple's uh, radio station on in, the, in, our, at our, in our kitchen radio, mm-hmm. and they just play classical music during the day. That's right. And the only time I recognize a piece <laughs> is if it was on Bugs Bunny. Exactly. <laughs> right. Or Carmen. Like, I can pull Carmen. Okay, okay. Because of Carmen Jones. Right, right. But, like, that's the only... Like, Bugs Bunny... But I'm done. Now I'm done. Bugs Bunny is the one that introduced me to the Barbara of Seville. (laughs) The Ring. The Barbara of Seville. The Ring. Um, Oh, my goodness. Everything, man. She's the daughter of Rosie O'Grady, a regular (laughs) old-fashioned girl. Right. Like everything, dog. Speaking of blackface, I wish, (laughs) I wish, I wish I was in Dixie. Oh, yeah. They just used to throw Bugs Bunny cartoons on. Oh, God. Oh, God. Bunga, 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 bunga. Unga bunga bunga bunga. Unga bunga bingo bunga bingo bunga bingo. <laughs> Terrible. Robert Monroe says one time a girlfriend took me to the Met for an opera and was embarrassed when I said I know this from Bugs Bunny. That's right. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. Sing along. The cultural education. Figaro. Figaro. No, that's not what you do. You stand up, 
you stand up and proudly proclaim, kill the wabbit. <laughs> Lightning flow. Thunder flow. <laughs> <laughs> What have I done? <laughs> I, I killed, killed the weapon. <laughs> oh, oh God! <laughs> oh God! I may have to keep this on the on the podcast. <laughs> well, what did you expect? An opera always has a sad ending. <laughs> Oh God! What's up? Opera should win Academy Awards every year. I know, Just every year. I know, <laughs> I know. I think that's the one that was nominated for uh, for an Oscar. I'm not. Uh-huh. I'm not sure if it won. Oh yeah, I know he's Come won an on, Oscar. Man. I don't know if he won an Oscar for that. Let's see. Now I gotta look it up. Um, because <laughs> I want to. We know. should probably talk about um a movie though. We should, but wait a minute. What's Opera Doc is... Oh, wow. Check this out, Vince. The things you learn. What's Opera Doc, first of all, think of how many times you've watched that, Vince. What year do you think that cartoon is from? I assume the 50s. 1957. Yeah, yeah. Um. It features Elmer chasing bugs through a parody of 19th century classical composer Richard Rogner's operas, particularly The Ring. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it borrows heavily from the second opera in The Ring Cycle. Um, And the cartoon marks the final appearance of Elmer Fudd in a Chuck Jones cartoon. Wow. I would have never imagined that. Wow, well, what a way to go out. I know, right? Like, that's how you take a bow. I know. The the cartoon is widely regarded as Chuck Jones's masterpiece, and many film critics, yeah. animation fans, and filmmakers consider it to be the greatest of all the cartoons Warner Brothers released. It has topped many top ten lists of the greatest animated cartoons of all time. In 1992, the United States Library of Congress deemed it culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and selected it for preservation in the national film registry, making it the first cartoon to receive such honors. If, if they're going to pick one, that's wow. the one to pick. Wow. And Chuck Jones is the only animator with three shorts, which have since been recognized for that honor. What's opera doc? Duck Amuck and That's a good one. And your favorite One Froggy Evening. Really? Yes. Yes. Your man Michigan J Frog's debut. Who's the demon? <laughs> yes. The demon Hello, Michigan J Frog is in the right, Library of Congress. Wow. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. That's one to grow on, ladies and gentlemen. You're yes, welcome from your and now you know at the, the rest of Mission. the story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's get into our review of One False Move. <laughs> 
now it's time to bid adieu. It's been a pleasure knowing you. I'll see you when it's time to meet again. <laughs>